Well, good morning. Whoa, the Paddits are in the house. This is an exciting day. Morning, everybody. Good to see you. Good to see lots of faces. Barbecues after the service. Be ready to stuff your face. That's like the American way I've learned when I got here. Uh, you know, when I first got here, I went to, I was living at Multnomah, and there was this little uh, Chinese restaurant just down the street called Jinjin. And I remember going, and for five bucks, I could order this. This is not part of my notes. For five bucks, I could order this, uh, like, uh, chicken fried rice. And I was like, five bucks for chicken fried rice? And then I, I got it, and they gave me this tub, and I opened it up, and it was like the most food I'd ever seen in my life. And I got, like, I don't know, just over a third of the way through it before my stomach was full. By the end of the semester, I could eat the whole thing. But like portion sizes here are huge, so, so we're going we're gonna to eat good. Um, anyway, uh, just on, on some of those things that were up there, you know, uh, Love Inc. Is a, is a group we partner with, and they're doing this seminar July 31st. And so what's the seminar about? It is training you to be more effective at helping people. Um, and, and so what are the kinds of help that, that, need, that we need in our city? We're saying as a church, we want to be active in helping the community. We want, want to be engaged in acts of, of justice and mercy and benevolence in the city roundabout. We think we know how to do that well, but that's not always the case. So if this is a partner of ours and that is a value of ours as a church, then lots of us should be signing up to go to this, right? And because we're going to put our action where our mouths are, and we're going to jump into these kind of things. There's a worship event that's going to happen August 21st in downtown Portland. Uh, people from all around the city, different churches, uh, was it last weekend? I don't remember when it was now. Uh, gathered in areas around about downtown Portland to help clean up all of the garbage that was down there. And then they're going to launch into this season of 21 days of prayer for the city. And they're going to end it with this big worship event downtown. And I, I put a little bit about that in my email. But these are the sorts of things when, when we're saying as a church, we want to partner with what God wants to do in the city. We need to look at those kind of things and say, okay, this is a partner of ours. This is something we value as a church. So how do we represent our church at these events? So I'm hoping, um, I'm not... I'm not here for this one. Um, so I'm hoping I'm going to hear that a bunch of people from our church went to be trained on how to help effectively. When we're worshiping downtown Portland, I'm hoping Alliance Bible Church is going to be there on force to represent this part of Portland as we gather as the church to worship. So, so just, just a little rant. There's going to be lots of that this morning. I'm very, very sorry. Um, uh, my family leaves on, on Wednesday. We're flying to Scotland. I, I love you all, but I really love my mom, right? So I, I just want you, I want you to repeat after me, right? You say mom, it's not, she's not my mom. I just want you to say mom. Yep, so I'm going to go see my mom, and I can't wait. The kids are so excited to see grandma. So um, I, gran, as we call her. Um, so I'm going to be out, <laughs> I said lots of rants. So you know, um, People want a name that their kids call, like, if you're thinking about being a grandparent, you're like, I want my grandkids to call me grandma, or I want them to call me whatever. But you will be labeled by whatever mess of syllables comes out of the mouth of the first child. Um, and, and so it's gran and boompa, because that's all that could be said instead of grandpa. So um, we're going to go visit them. It's going to be lots of fun. There are people going to be preaching, some friends from inside the church, some friends from outside the church. So there's a great lineup planned for you while I'm gone, so be excited about that. 
So anyway, here's what we are supposed to be talking about. So we're in this season as a church where we are rebirthing and revisioning where we're going after a long season um, in the church and after a 14-month interim pastor helping kind of break old habits and get us ready, we've been in this season where we're trying to say, where are we going as a church? And so we started out by doing this series on prayer, looking at what it means to be a praying people and what the Bible teaches about how we're supposed to pray for the church and the role of the church into the world. Um, and now we're just coming, getting really close to the end of this series going through Acts where we're trying to recover the vision of what the church was like when it was formed, when it was closest to the heartbeat of Jesus um, as it was operating in the world. And so we're trying to recover this identity. What does it mean to be a people who are sent into the world? Um, and so we're, we're in this series for that purpose. Um, uh, and we're getting close to the end. We're in the home stretch. We're right at the end. This is chapter 25 and 26. There's 28 chapters in Acts. At this part of the journey, um, Acts is divided up geographically. So the, uh, Jesus is here. He ascends. The Spirit pours out. And then it's the gospel going from Jerusalem to Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. So that's how the book is divided up. And we watch the gospel as it spreads in Jerusalem. We watch as it spreads into Judea and Samaria. And then Paul is anointed and sent out. And we watch him as he travels around the known world at the time taking the gospel. And we're in the home stretch of the book, which is all Paul's journey from Jerusalem to Rome. So everything we're looking at in this part of the story is him trying to make his way to Rome to do what God's called him to do. Um, last week, I addressed the fact that in this part of the story, um, Luke is setting up a contrast between Paul and his innocence and integrity, and then the, the other people out there, especially the Jewish and the Gentile rulers who are walking in deception and corruption. Um, and so you're going to see that same theme as we look at the passage today, but we're going to jump in. We're going to read all of 25 and 26, um, and we're going to look at... This, this last part as Paul's getting ready um, to head out to Rome. So this is chapter 25, starting in verse 1. It says, three days after arriving in the province, remember uh, Felix has just stopped, Paul's been kept in jail for two years, um, and then Festus is arriving. So three days after arriving in the province, Festus went up from Caesarea to Jerusalem, where the chief priests of the Jewish leaders appeared before him and presented the charges against Paul. They requested Festus as a favor to them to have Paul transferred to Jerusalem, for they were preparing an ambush to kill him along the way. Now just remember, Paul's been in jail for two years. Two years ago, they wanted them to send them to Jerusalem so that they could ambush him along the way, and they ended up sending him under this huge guard to get there. So two years have gone, it's the same trick. Transfer him to Jerusalem, we're gonna ambush him along the way. Festus answered, Paul has been held at Caesarea and I myself am going there soon. Let some of your leaders come with me and if the man has done anything wrong, they can press charges against him there. After spending eight or 10 days with them, Festus went down to Caesarea. The next day, he convened the court and ordered that Paul be brought before him. When Paul came in, the Jews who had come down from Jerusalem stood around him. They brought many serious charges against him, but they could not prove them. Then Paul made his defense. I have done nothing wrong against the Jewish law or against the temple or against Caesar. Now remember, this is Paul, a Pharisee of the strictest sect of Judaism. So if anyone understands what it means to transgress the law or the temple, Paul gets it. He's also a Roman citizen. 
that was born outside of Jerusalem and studied outside of Jerusalem, so he understands what it means to offend Caesar. So he knows what he's talking about. I've done nothing in either of these levels. Festus, though, wishing to do the Jews a favor, said to Paul, are you willing to go up to Jerusalem and stand trial before me there on these charges? Paul answered, I am now standing before Caesar's court where I ought to be tried. I have not done any wrong to the Jews as you yourself know very well. If, however, I'm guilty of doing anything deserving death, I do not refuse to die. But if the charges brought against me by these Jews are not true, no one has the right to hand me over to them. I appeal to Caesar. After Festus had conferred with his council, he declared, you have appealed to Caesar, to Caesar you will go. A few days later, King Agrippa and Bernice arrived at Caesarea to pay their respects to Festus. Since they were spending many days there, Festus discussed Paul's case with the king. He said, there's a man here whom Felix left as a prisoner. When I went to Jerusalem, the chief priests and the elders of the Jews brought charges against him and asked that he be condemned. I told them that it is not the Roman custom to hand over anyone before they faced their accusers and had an opportunity to defend themselves against the charges. When they came here with me, I did not delay the case, but convened the court the next day and ordered the man to be brought in. When his accusers got up to speak, they did not charge him with any of the crimes I expected. Instead, they had some points of dispute with him about their own religion and about some dead man named Jesus who Paul claimed was alive. You got to think of this for a minute, right? When we're sharing the gospel with people out here, out there, the reality is this is a guy that's been dead for 2,000 years in the physical. And we're like, he's alive. So kinda, it's kind of crazier what we say than what he says. Uh, I was at a loss for how to investigate such matters, as would all of us be. Um, so I asked if he would be willing to go to Jerusalem and stand trial there on these charges. But when Paul made his appeal to be held over for the emperor's decision, I ordered him held until I could send him to Caesar. Then Agrippa said to Festus, I would like to hear this man myself. So he replied, tomorrow you will hear him. I love Luke's thoroughness and like details we didn't need to know. Uh, the next day, Agrippa and Bernice came with great pomp and entered the audience room. Pay attention to his here with the high-ranking military officers and the prominent men of the city. So this is a big show and display. At the command of Festus, Paul was brought in. Festus said, King Agrippa and all who are present with us, you see this man. The whole Jewish community has petitioned me about him in Jerusalem and here in Caesarea shouting that he ought not to live any longer. I found that he had done nothing deserving of death, but because he made his appeal to the emperor, I descended, decided to send him to Rome. But I have nothing definite to write to his majesty about him. Therefore, I've brought him, bef uh, brought him before all of you, and especially before you, King Agrippa, so that as a result of, uh, of this investigation, I may have something to write. For I think it's unreasonable to send a prisoner on to Rome without specifying the charges against him. Then Agrippa said to Paul, you have permission to speak for yourself. So Paul motioned with his hand and began his defense. King Agrippa, I consider myself fortunate to stand before you today as I make my defense against all the accusations of the Jews, and especially so because you are well acquainted with all the Jewish customs and controversies. Therefore, I beg you to listen to me patiently. 
The Jewish people all know the way I've lived ever since I was a child from the beginning of my life in my own country and also in Jerusalem. They have known me for a long time and can testify, if they're willing, that I conformed to the strictest sect of our religion, living as a Pharisee. And now it's because of my hope in what God has promised our ancestors that I am on trial today. This is the promise our 12 tribes are hoping to see fulfilled as they earnestly serve God day and night. King Agrippa, it's because of this hope that these Jews are accusing me. Why should any of you consider it incredible that God raises the dead? I too was convinced that I ought to do all that was possible to oppose the name of Jesus of Nazareth. And that's just what I did in Jerusalem. On the authority of the chief priests, I put many of the Lord's people in prison. And when they were put to death, I cast my vote against them. Many a time I went from one synagogue to another to have them punished, and I tried to force them to blaspheme. I was so obsessed with persecuting them that I even hunted them down in foreign cities. On one of these journeys, I was going to Damascus with the authority and commission of the chief priests. About noon, King Agrippa, as I was on the road, I saw a light from heaven, brighter than the sun, blazing around me and my companions. We all fell to the ground, and I heard a voice saying to me in Aramaic, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? It is hard for you to kick against the goats. Now, just remember, this is the third time he's given this story in Acts. Like, this is key. Um, then I asked, who are you, Lord? I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting, the Lord replied. Now get up and stand on your feet. I have appeared to you to appoint you as a servant and as a witness of what you've seen and will see of me. I will rescue you from your own people and from the Gentiles. Little promise that he got right at the beginning that's key to what's going on right now. I will rescue you from your own people and from the Gentiles. I'm sending you to them to open their eyes and turn them from darkness to light, from the power of Satan to God, so that they may receive forgiveness of sins and a place among those who are sanctified by faith in me. So then, King Agrippa, I was not disobedient to the vision from heaven. First to those in Damascus, then to those in Jerusalem, and in all Judea, and then to the Gentiles. I preached that they should repent and turn to God and demonstrate their repentance by their deeds. That's why some Jews seized me in the temple courts and tried to kill me. But God has helped me to this very day. So I stand here and testify to small and great alike. I'm saying nothing beyond what the prophets and Moses said would happen, that the Messiah would suffer and, as the first to rise from the dead, would bring the message of light to his own people and to the Gentiles. At this point, Festus interrupted Paul's defense. You are out of your mind, Paul, he shouted. Your great learning is driving you insane. I think that's what he would probably, Paul would probably say to the church in the West right now. Um, I'm not insane, most excellent Festus, Paul replied. What I am saying is true and reasonable. The king is familiar with these things and I can speak freely to him. I am convinced that none of this have, has escaped his notice because it was not done in a corner. King Agrippa, do you believe the prophets? I know you do. Then Agrippa said to Paul, do you think that in such a short time you can persuade me to be a Christian? Paul replied, short time or long, I pray to God that not only you, but all who are listening to me today become what I am, except for these chains. The king rose, and with him the governor and Bernice and those sitting with them. After they left the room, they began saying to one another, this man is not doing anything that deserves death or imprisonment. Agrippa said to Festus, this man could have been set free if he had not appealed to Caesar. 
They're good at the cliffhangers. You got this little moment where it's like, was Paul an idiot here? Should he have appealed to Caesar? Their decision at the end, he could have been set free if he hadn't. You're like, what's going on? What's going on, Paul? Why did you do this? So this is a big story. This is getting a like climactic moments of the book as we're, as we're coming into this home straight. Um, but you know, this all, all of this story, everything in 25 and 26 hinges on this declaration of hope that Paul makes. This is Acts 26, 6 and 7. This is the, the climactic moment of the book that frames everything in this story. He says, it's because of my hope and what God has promised that these things are happening to me. So, so look in this point in, in, in the story because he's framing the story for us to understand what's going on. He's trying to draw attention to the fact that everything going on in this passage is about hope. It's about Paul's hope uh, and what that hope leads him to believe and to do. And then that applies to us. What does hope mean for us and how we live in this world and how we act as sent ones into the world? So you've got to ask the question, what is hope? Um, so here's definitions again. It's, it's always good to just look up a di- dictionary definition because we, we kind of assume what these things mean. Um, so hope, a feeling of expectation and desire for a certain thing to happen or a feeling of trust. I think the interesting thing with the word hope, we tend to use the word hope more like wish, you know? It's kind of like, oh, I wish that would happen. Oh, I hope that's what happens. We use it more as wishful thinking. Um, we tend to use the word hope and kind of make it synonymous also with like optimism. Like a hopeful person is someone that is optimistic. And, uh, and I think that's a, a misunderstanding of what hope is. Here's, here's a definition of biblical hope. It's the confident expectation rooted in the faithfulness of Jesus that what God has promised will be fulfilled. Um, And in Acts 25 and 26, we're seeing Paul's hope, a confident expectation that God has told him he's going to go to Rome. So he's going to Rome, even though it feels like everything around him is, is going to pot. So it's a confidence that the result is going to happen despite the circumstances that he's facing. And in this part of the story, we see it as, as, as a supreme hope, a hope above all else. And there are lots of little clues and, 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 and aspects of the story where you're seeing the hope that Paul carries raising him above the things in the world. So we're going to look at those, um, just some of the ways that, that hope causes Paul to rise above. Um, and then we're going to look at uh, some truths that help us in that process. So the first w- thing that hope raises Paul above is circumstance. And we get this because of the story, but I, I just, I love that, that it's framed, if you go back to 24, 25, and 26, all of this narrative is framed around the Jewish leaders trying whatever they can do to kill Paul, right? They want him destroyed. So as a favor, transfer him to, to Jerusalem. We, the holy people of God, who uphold the law and are disappointed with this guy because he's not doing according to the law the things that, that we think he should do, we're going to commit murder and breach the law, and we're going to call it good. So, so this whole thing is framed with these people trying to kill Paul, and then Paul's like standing up before rulers going, you know, it's my pleasure to stand before you today and give my defense. He's like, it's almost like he's oblivious to the circumstances that he's facing. 
You know, the hope of the gospel raises us above our circumstances. So what are the circumstances that you're facing? What are the issues in your family that make you feel hopeless or powerless? Is there illness that you're dealing with? Are there problems at work? Are there changes in life, in your life round about you that are struggling? Are you facing persecution, shattered dreams, hopes that are lost? What are the circumstances that get you discouraged? What are the things that leave you feeling powerless and wondering where the world is going to? What are the circumstances that get you down? Hope is something that's going to raise you above those circumstances. Uh, We are really guilty as Christians of, we're really guilty as humans of fixing our eyes on the problems around about us and fixing our eyes on ourselves and our ability to fix the problem. And then we're like, where's God? Well, he's where you're not looking. (laughs) You're too busy looking at yourself and the circumstances. We need to lift our eyes up. Paul, all the way through this story, has his eyes, I said this last week, they're like zeroed in on Jesus. Like his eyes are fixed on Christ. And so all this stuff is happening round about and it's like Paul has been lifted up and seated up above it all with a panoramic view that enables him to walk forward. So what are the circumstances that are getting you down? Are you gonna allow hope to elevate you above those circumstances? The second thing in this story that we see Paul raised above is is what I'd call the fallen systems. Like this frustrating moment, like the Jews of, the chief priests and the Jewish leaders have asked, do us a favor, send them to Jerusalem, and then we're gonna kill them along the way. And then all of a sudden, Festus is like, he wants to do a favor to the Jews. He wants to keep them sweet. So maybe I'll just send Paul to Jerusalem. Like Paul is wrestling with this fallen system. Um, I'd highlighted and read as we were reading through all of these declarations from different people. They can't prove their charges. Paul has done nothing wrong. Like Paul is innocent of everything that they're charging him against, but the system is set against him. Um, They're trying to convict him of things that he didn't do. They're twisting it. They're trying to deceive. They're trying to manipulate uh, to get what they want. Paul is facing this circumstance. And what Luke doesn't say is Paul standing there going, oh, I hate the system. God, would you just destroy the system? Like, he's not caring about that. His eyes are fixed on Jesus and his hope in Jesus and the promise that Jesus is going to lead him and rescue him from his own people and from the Gentiles carries him forward above the fallen systems in hope that God is going to do what he promised. And this, you know, Matthew 16, I'm sure you're familiar with this passage, but but they're talking, uh, Jesus is talking to Peter, you're Peter, and on this rock, you Peter, and what you're declaring, I will build this church. And he says, and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. You know, I hear lots of people here, it's like the American government is more powerful than Jesus. Like the American government can stand against the church. The gates of hell cannot prevail against the church. So we've got to stop being discouraged by what we see out there and allow the hope of the gospel to raise us above the fallen system, stand above it and see that God is working and the gates of hell will not prevail against his church. Um, the third way, <laughs> amen, Dan. The third way that hope raises Paul up is it raises him above his self. Um, There's a couple of things in here. You know, I was convinced that I ought to do all that was possible to oppose the name of Jesus. This was Paul's testimony. Like, he actually says in the passage, I was obsessed so much so that I was traveling outside of the area to find these people and destroy them. Like, murderous zeal and obsession. 
Like if, if we found someone today that was traveling to every state in the US to kill groups of Christians, it's all over the news. Like what would we call that person? Delusional, insane, like uh, pathological. Like he's got a pathological obsession with destroying the name of Jesus. Um, and he shares this testimony again. God raised me above myself. Um, so there's two ways that he's raised above self in this passage. Because the first one is he's innocent and he can do nothing to change the outcome in front of him. So it doesn't matter how well he argues. It doesn't matter how much effort he exerts. He can't get out of the situation. The Jewish people are going to kill him. So he's elevated above his own ability. He's elevated above his own sinfulness. Like the brokenness that led him to oppose the person of Jesus, hope has raised him up above himself and all of his fallenness to enable him to be an agent of God. So, so what are the things in your life that God wants to use hope to elevate you above? What's the sin that you're wrestling with and that you're trapped in that you keep asking yourself the question, will I ever be able to break free of this thing? The hope of the gospel wants to raise you above that. What's the brokenness or the fallen pattern that you see yourself stuck in? Like, oh, I'm always avoiding conflict or I'm always putting my foot in my mouth. Why can I not just keep shut up? Why can I not speak more firmly to people? Why can I not set better boundaries? Why can I not manage my money better? Why am I not better in relationship? Like there are all of these broken issues that we feel disqualify us. But what we see in this story is hope elevated Paul above all of those things. You don't have to be trapped. Um, if it's just you and Jesus in a corner with your Bible, it's going to be a very, very, very slow process to experience freedom. God in his grace may break out in a moment as you read and be like, bam, I'm setting you free. But normally what he'll do is he brings you into community with people that you trust and you disclose the issues that are going on in your life and they speak the truth of God and the grace of God and they embrace you and your brokenness and your mess. It's about, I, I don't speak up enough. It's about someone else saying, now is your time to speak up. You speak up too much. It's someone that loves you saying, hey, you need to keep your mouth shut right now and listen. We need one another, but the hope of the gospel as we come together can elevate us above our sin patterns, our brokenness patterns, even our personality patterns so that we can function more healthily in the church and then into the world. Fourth one that's in here that you see so clearly, hope raises Paul against the fear of pain and death. A couple of little verses in here, you know, if I'm guilty of doing anything deserving of death, I don't refuse to die. Like Paul has gone past the fear of death because he knows what's coming. And um, I pray to God not that not, uh, not only you but all who are listening to me may become what I am except for the chains. Like he's imprisoned and he doesn't matter. He doesn't mind the pain that he's of the beatings that he's endured. Well, he didn't like it. He didn't like the beatings. He's not some kind of masochist that enjoys pain. But he's been able to rise above the fear that he would go into town uh, and share the gospel knowing what the result would be. Um, but yet we sit in a place where our hope has not caused us to rise above fear, uh, the fear of pain and death. And so we fear the judgment if we, if we say something. We fear the rejection if we speak the truth. We fear what people will think if we step up and we do what God's called us to do. Hope elevates us above those fears so that we can be and do what God wants us to do. So it's, it's about hope. Everything in this passage that enables Paul to do what he does is the hope that God will do the 
things that, that he's called us to do. You know, we are called to be people of hope. As a church, one of the key marks of our lives and our community is hope. Um, and then we're called, this, this whole series is about being sent. We are called to be sent into the world to be agents of hope, helping the people out there to rise above circumstances, rise above the fallen system, rise above their own brokenness, rise up above the fear, pain, and death in order uh, to, to encounter the gospel and then become agents of it to the world round about. Um, I think there are a lot of Christians that I encounter they sound more depressed and discouraged and hopeless than the people in the world that I'm listening to. Um, so, so where are you at in that? As you look at the world, as you consider your faith, are you looking around going, it's hopeless. The world's gone to pot. There's no hope. The church is a mess. Like the government's a mess. Like, do you sound like the person of hope who's risen above the world and is standing victorious with Jesus over the world? Or do you sound like, and, and I tell you, there's people out there that, that are more hopeful about where the world is going than we are. They're hopeful about the wrong things. We got to bring the right hope to them to rise above it. So I'm going to finish. I'm going to fly through five things that, that I think are where our hope comes from. Um, as we walk in Jesus, how do we stand in hope? Where does it come from? First of all, God's promises hold true. Like, this is what Paul was saying. Like, I have hope in the promises of God and that we, they will come to pass. So we can rise above our circumstances because everything that he said will happen will happen. Freedom from sin is possible. Healing from illness is possible. Victory over darkness is possible. World transformed by the church is possible. He said these things will happen. Do you believe it? Do you believe the promises of God hold true? Or do you believe the systems of the world can trump the promises of God? A couple of verses, uh, 2 Corinthians, no matter how many promises God has made, they are yes in Christ. And so through him, the amen is spoken by us to the glory of God. There's not a single promise that doesn't get a hearty yes from Christ. And, and put into the world through him. The, the author of Hebrews challenges the church, hold unswervingly to the hope we profess, for he who promised is faithful, and he will see those promises through to the end. So God's promises hold true. Number two, there is more to life than this world. Oh, we get this one so messed up. It, our, our worldview is so upside down and we get so overwhelmed by what's going on around about us. There's more to life than this world. That doesn't mean, that, so, so let's just ignore the world and let it go to pot. Uh, but there's more to life than this world. What's Paul say? You know, we don't lose heart. Though inwardly we're wasting away, inward, outwardly we're wasting away, inwardly we're being renewed day by day. For our light and momentary troubles are achieving for us an eternal glory that far outweighs all of the bad stuff we can experience. So fix your eyes, not on what is seen, but, what is on, but on what is unseen. Uh, since what is seen is temporary, but what is unseen is eternal. Paul's constantly drawing the church back to the reality that there is more to life than the world that we see. Now that doesn't mean we're going to leave this world and go to a magic planet somewhere else that he's created for us. That's not, like a new heaven and a new earth is going to descend out of heaven and, and we're going to participate in that. We're not going to be whipped away to a different planet to live happily in a, in a, in a different place. That's not the way it works. But but, uh, but things here, there's this cosmic battle going on. Um, we are part of fighting this battle against the powers of darkness. 
Um, Number three, so uh, God is always present. God is present always. This is the thing. I've said this so many times. It's the thing that makes all the difference. Like the difference between like suffering hopelessly and suffering with hope is the awareness that God is present with you in the suffering. Dealing with illness, there's a hope that we can carry that God is going to heal us. That's one part of it. We hope for that and we join you in praying for it. But the other part of it is that in the middle of your suffering and illness, that God is present and that God can use this to sanctify you and to make you more effective in ministering out there in the world. Um, hope is you're looking at your family and going, my kids are, are they don't like Jesus. They don't like me. I don't know what to do. It's saying like, Part of hope is, God, that you can restore this, um, that you say you want to turn the hearts of fathers to children, uh, children to their parents. And, uh, and so part of it is we believe God is a God of reconciliation and he promises that he can reconcile. So part of hope is that. The other part of hope is even in the middle of this situation, God is present with my kids going all different directions, with my marriage falling apart, God is present and that he can use this to transform me. He can take all of my sin and brokenness and when submitted to him, he can use that sin and brokenness uh, redeemed to reach other people. It's about hope that God is present in the middle of it and his presence changes everything. Um, Is God present in our city? Sometimes when I'm in conversation with people in the room, it feels like you talk like God has left. Like God is always present. He is here. Uh, We may have closed our eyes to his presence. We may not be so fixed on the brokenness of the world that we don't see him at work. But God is here and he's moving. You know, there's people in the room today that have moved from a different state to be here in Portland because they believe God is moving and they want to be part of it. Like, and then there's others of us who live here going, God's left, I'm moving to Idaho because God's over there, you know? And I, I'm making light, that, I, that wasn't meant to be a political statement um, at all, but just we have this mentality, God is not here, but he's over there. And that's not the message the Bible teaches. Um, are you able to see that God is present and he's moving? And will you be his agent? Like you can go to a Christian country um, where like, hundreds of people are following Jesus and you can be there and you can just be part of the holy huddle or you can stand in a place of darkness and be the light of the world. That's what we're called to be. I don't want to go somewhere else where my faith is easier. I want to be where he's called me and to bear his truth in the middle of it. A couple of verses again. God is present always. I mean, Paul, do you know that your bodies are temples of the Holy Spirit who is in you? So if you doubt he's present in Portland, he's in you, which means he's here in Portland. Right? And the more of us that are believers in Portland, the more of him present in every situation there is. That's why we want more people to follow him, because we want more of Jesus lived out in the world round about. Um, one of my favorite verses in all the scriptures, so encouraging, Second Chronicles. The eyes of the Lord range throughout the whole earth, looking to strengthen those whose hearts are fully committed to him. Like he's on the hunt in Portland for people who are committed to him, who he can strengthen and empower to be his agent. So are you going to be someone that's here doing the work that he's called you to? Or are you going to head somewhere else for an easier life? That's the, that's the choice that we've got to deal with. Um, So where's our hope come from? God's promises hold true. There's more to life than this world. God is present always. Fourth one, Jesus is coming back. Yeah, okay. 
That was the warm-up. Let me do it again. A little more energy. Jesus is coming back. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, Revelation 22. Look, I am coming soon. My reward is with me, and I will give to each person according to what they've done. I'm the Alpha and the Omega, the first and the last, the beginning and the end. Yes, I am coming soon. Amen. Come, Lord Jesus. Like, He is coming. He is coming. But here's the deal. This book was written 2,000 years ago. So for 2,000 years, we've been saying he's coming. We're longing for it. We're hoping for it. But we don't know the day and we don't know the time. But he is coming. It's the promise that we hold to. Here's, here's an interesting thing. The book of Revelation is not a message that says the world is going to pot. Screw it all. Jesus is coming back. That's not the message of the book of Revelation. The message of the book of Revelation is, hey, church, all these horrible things are happening. Hold firm persevere, have faith, because Jesus is coming back. And a lot of us stand in this posture of like, okay, Jesus is he's coming soon, so screw the world. So what's the point in the church? Just stand here and worship until he comes back and then let the world go apart? That's not the message I see in the gospel. It's buckled down. Don't be a bearer of gloom to the world, but bring the message of hope. Hardship will come. The government will oppress. Things will be difficult, but Jesus will overcome. And then he says, to those of you who also overcome, to those of you who through hope raise above the brokenness of the world, he's going to move. He's going to bless us. He's going to work through us. The world is not over. The world is not hopeless. Jesus is coming back. But that doesn't mean our job is done. If you're someone that reads the Bible and, and sees like, you know, the, the government's winning, the world is going to pot, you're not reading the same Bible I'm reading. Because the entire New Testament messages hold firm. Nero is burning Christians. Persevere. Because God's going to refine your faith. It's, yeah, they're going to take your life. They're going to take your freedom. Preach the gospel in chains. Like, are you willing to risk your life for the sake of the gospel? Go for it. Preach the message. This is what he calls us to. And why do we do it? Jesus is coming back. He's coming back for this world. He's going to reward us according to what we've done. And so we get to join him in that work. So we've got to pray and hope and expect that he's coming back. And there's lots of things in the world that make me look at it and go, man, he's got to be coming soon because things look horrible. And then I think about the first century church, and I'm like, I don't see any Christians in our country being hung on stakes and burned to light up the night sky. I don't see our neighboring state coming in and ripping open the bellies of pregnant women and stamping on their babies. Like, I don't see someone raping someone down the street, and then the courts go, well, if you give their parents 500 bucks, she's now your wife. Like, so, so I'm like, I, is it worse now than it used to be? I don't know. I think it's a mess. <laughs> I think there's a lot of mess. Is the mess any worse than it was? I don't know. But what I do know is there's brokenness in the world and we're called to rise above it. I do know that Jesus is coming back and he'll be victorious. Here's the last point and why we should have hope and why we should rise above it. And it's this, revival is possible. And this is why I said what I did about Jesus coming and why I want to challenge the mentality that you just got to kind of abandon ship because the world's going to pot and Jesus is coming back. Revival is possible. 
I don't want to lead a church where we're saying, let's just let the world drop. We'll try and share the gospel here and there as we feel comfortable. Most of the time we don't because we don't like to and it's uncomfortable. So we're going to be very vocal about the fact the world is going to pot, that Jesus is coming back soon, and then we're not going to open our mouths to do anything about it. So that's a posture that we sit in. I want to sit in the posture that revival is possible, that there are people out there that are hungry for the gospel, and even if the world is going to pot, and even if Jesus is coming tomorrow, that we as a church can be agents of revival in our city. What did Jesus say? To, to the Jewish people, remember, Roman occupation. So God's people are being oppressed. Um, Roman governors that are destroying the church and killing them, brutally murdering them, uh, raping, pillaging, whatever. Jesus goes through the towns and villages teaching in their synagogues, proclaiming the good news of the kingdom, positive message in the middle of all that nonsense, healing every sickness and disease. When he saw the crowds, he had compassion on them because they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. Does that sound like our world? Harassed and helpless, broken people that are wandering around like shepherdless sheep. It sounds like the world that we live in. It sounds like many of us in the church. We often are like sheep without a shepherd. Then he said to his disciples, look at all of that. The harvest is plentiful. The problem is not the harvest. The laborers are few. So ask the Lord of the harvest to send out workers into the harvest field. The harvest out there is plentiful. People are starving for hope. People are starving for an identity. People are starving to be told that they're valuable, even with all of their mess and confusion. People are hungry for purpose, to bring something different to the world around about them. The harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Are you a laborer? Are you a laborer? Like, are you actively sharing the gospel? Are you actively ministering to the broken? Because the, the challenge that Jesus gives us, the laborers are few. It's why the church here hasn't been growing in the past, because we're not laboring in the fields and reaching people for the name of Jesus. So then we end up with a bunch of Christians that slowly decline as people die off or people go to other churches where they're experiencing what they want to experience. God's promises are true. This world is not all there is. Jesus is present always, even in the middle of your worst situation. He is coming back, and I hope it's really soon because I want to see him face to face, and I want an end to all the sickness and the suffering and the pain and the sorrow. But so long as he's not standing here on the earth, revival is possible. And it's our job as the church to be his agents of revival in the city round about us. You've got to ask yourself the question, am I a person of hope? Do I believe there's hope for the world around me? Or do I believe the systems in the world can defeat the church? Do I believe that the brokenness of the world can overcome the power of God in the world? So this whole series is, a, is about recovering our identity as sent people. Are we sent as agents of hope in the world? Let me finish with another verse that, that is part of Paul's testimony. This is Acts 26. This is the commission that God gave to Paul that is also the commission for us as the church. He looked at Paul, who was lying on the ground, immobile. He says, get up and stand on your feet. I have appeared to you to point you as a servant as an, and as a witness of what you've seen and will see of me. I will rescue you from your own people and from the Gentiles. 
I am sending you to them to open their eyes, to turn them from darkness to light, from the power of Satan to God, so that they may receive forgiveness of sins and a place among those who are sanctified by faith in me. This is the commission for us as the church in a broken, messy world. So what I want to do is I want to read this to you, and I want to pray this over you, and I want you to invite you to respond to these words. So it starts, get up and stand on your feet. So I want you to do that. Stand up. Like, if you're part of the church, stand up. If you're able, I know not everyone is able, if you're unable to stand up, you can do something as simple as just put your hands out in front of you as a way of saying, like, I want to respond to this. Here's Jesus' words to you as the church. I have appeared to you. Like, if you know Jesus, he has called you. I have appeared to you to appoint you as a service, a, a servant, and as a witness of what you have seen and will see of me. So there's a promise in there. You have seen things of God, and there are things that you are still going to see that he wants to give you. I will rescue you from your own people and from the Gentiles. So your own crowd, the, the Christians that want to persecute you, the people out there that want to persecute you, he will rescue you from them. And then here's what he says for you, and this is my prayer. He says to you, and I want you to hear this, put, you can just say your own name in front of what I say. So just think your own name. I am sending you to them to open their eyes and turn them from darkness to light and from the power of Satan to God so that they may receive forgiveness of sins and a place among those who are sanctified by faith in me. So the question is, will you pick up that mantle? Will you be an agent of hope that rises above the world? Or are you going to be an agent of doom and gloom that sounds just like the world out there? Are you going to respond to the call to be a laborer in the harvest field, taking this hope to people around you? Or are you going to sit in a holy huddle um, and, and just write out your days? So let, let me pray this over you, um, and then we'll, we'll end with worship. God, thank you for the commission that you give us. You are not done in this world. And until Jesus is standing before us, we have a mandate on our lives to be your agents into this world. So God, as a church, we receive the commission to be servants and witnesses in this world. We need help. God, help us to be true servant-hearted believers. Help us to truly bear witness to what you've done in our lives. Uh, and allow us to see the things that you're going to do. God, we ask that you would help us as a church to, to rescue from darkness to light, to preach your name to the people that are hopeless, that you would use us to rescue from the power of Satan and turn people back to God, that they would experience forgiveness and a place among those who are sanctified. God, you want to see uh, life changed in our city. You want to see revival in our midst. And it always begins with you stirring up something new and fresh in us. God, would you change our perspective, fix our eyes on Jesus, and then send us to be like him to the world round about us. God, change our perspective. Raise us above the fallen system of the world to be people of hope that no matter how bad we feel the government is, that you're victorious over it. 
God, give us hope that no matter how painful the circumstances are that we face, that you are present in them, that you will overcome them, and that you will transform us and redeem them and use it in the world. God, help us to know that you are here, that you are present, that you're moving, that you can transform our sin, that you can free us, that you can change us and empower us to be more like Christ in the world. God, we want to be your agents. We want to be a church that's fired up and sent by you for your glory. So we need kind of a a, a reformatting of our brains. God, we need a a redoing, reload the software that helps us to fix our eyes on you, that helps us to hear the calling that you've placed on us, and that helps us to be people that go out in the world full of compassion, full of truth, and full of grace uh, to carry people into your arms. For the sake of Jesus, we pray.